Yeah, really high end. So it's like, yeah, you know, setting things on fire in front of tables and stuff. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So we're hit record, and my guest today is Ed Beeson. And Ed, you have had a long career in the food and music industry, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit more than that. But I found you, I got to give a shout out to, uh, I was introduced to you as a possible guest on the show through a mutual friend of ours, Michael Wansley. Uh, Mike is somebody I've known for I don't want to say how many years because he'll get mad at me, but long, long time. We were roommates in college back at Central. Found out a few minutes ago, Ed, you went to Central too. So it's correct. Why don't you tell our listeners, give us, you know, give us a little capsule of your story and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump out from there. Okay. Um, well, I was always, always, always the kid in high school that um, uh, was pegged as uh, knowing the most about music. I really love music. I couldn't play a lick. You know, going back to um, grade school in Seattle at Whittier, um, I remember, you know, whether I was in choir or in the band, I tried it all. Um, they would always, if it was in the choir, they'd say, just move your lips, don't try to sing. And if I was in the band, I was playing my grandfather's trombone. They'd say, just move uh-huh. it back and forth, but, you know, don't try to play. Go home and practice, and maybe we'll let you actually play in the band. Um, so that kind of but I, I never lost my, my passion for music. Um, my oldest sister was uh, actually was a, managed a, an act, in a jazz act in Seattle, Overton Berry, for, for quite a few years. And so I got exposed to, um, you know, jazz and blues and uh, stuff like that at a very early age. The first record I ever bought, I remember um, buying the stereo and the album on the same day down at uh, Gurky Music and Ballard on Market Street. And uh, I think they sold um, refrigerators and stoves too. But anyway, I bought this little Magnavox uh, portable stereo and went home and played Ray Charles' Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music uh, oh, back wow. in 19, okay. 19, 1961, I think um, it came out. And uh, so I was, you know, in high school, I was you know, the guy who hired the, the band to play at the prom and the senior trip and stuff like that. Um, and then when I went out to college in Ellensburg, I, I even got a little involved in the music scene there, mostly just going out and uh, you know, doing some underage drinking in the bars. But uh, Nobody did that in Ellensburg. No, no, no that's, that's, that's not true. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of that going on. So, and, yeah, go ahead. So let me ask you this. When you were in Ellensburg, I'm just seeing if there's, because you're older than I am, and, but I wonder if there's any overlap. Where were you, where were you going in Ellensburg? What were the, what were the central spots at the time you were there? Uh, well, of course the ranch was the big one, but okay. you know, um, there was one down um, on across from the Webster hotel, which of course burned down. But I ended up owning, that's where I got into the restaurant business. That's just why I'm going down this path. But oh, while okay. I was in school, I got involved with presenting a show um, at the college that had, it was kind of the history of African-Americans in uh, American popular music. And so two of the names that I remember working with was UB Blake and John Lee Hooker. And I spent one evening in UB Blake's, hotel room, the hotel, the holiday inn down by the freeway. And, and, and I uh, laughed cause I worked there. That, yeah, I, I was, too. A, I was, I, a, I, I was a bellboy and a bartender there. I was like, yeah, oh. I was a waiter there anyway. Okay. So, um, so I helped put this gig together, um, at, uh, the campus and then got to hang out with, uh, John Lee Hooker and Uby Blake in, uh, Uby's hotel room. And they did a little gig that night in the bar where you were the bartender there. You, you probably never knew this, but UB Blake and John Lee Hooker jammed on that stage. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, my claim to fame is that I got asked to carry the bags to his room for Sammy Hagar. Oh, wow. Cool. And, and I served dinner to Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> that was, that was, those are my two, you know, uh, name drop moments from the, the holiday Inn of, of my, my era. 
Yeah, so when, so, I, when, I, when I left Ellensburg, I came, moved back to Seattle, you know, pretty much out of desperation because I couldn't make a living there. By then, it was when, I, when my second kid was on the way and I was still trying to go to school and running a little restaurant in town. What uh, restaurant you know, were you running? What, what um, was it? Well, we called it um, the Valley Cafe originally, and then um, huh? it was uh, taken over by the outrageous taco people when we when we left. And uh, this was back in 1970. Same and location so the that the Valley Cafe is in now? And now, the, I was just going to say, then people bought it again later from the outrageous taco people and changed it to the Valley Cafe. So it was that building. That building had been was- vacant for like 20 years when my, me and my high school buddies you know, went in there and we completely um, restored that space. It was a quite a fun project. So, are you you were involved with setting up the the, the bar and all of that? The all that yeah, you know what was in there? Yeah, well, you know that's what the cool thing about that story. When we got to that building, there was nothing up above. I mean, the the floors were like just this solid dirt color. We weren't even sure what was below it, and there was there was none of those none of the booths, none of the countertop the only thing that was still there was the back bar um wow. the old refrigerated case back there but everything else had been meticulously taken apart and stored in the basement and so that was what we did it, it didn't even have a functioning uh heat or air conditioning when we took it over we were, we were paying 150 dollars a month for that oh place in uh, okay. in 1970 just a bunch of young kids you know who were going to we're going to move the restaurant business and and uh, we did we did live music there. That was um, you know another. I kept, music has always been part of what I've done. Um, but then I moved back to Seattle, and I, it took. I got lost. Just you know, my God, now I had two kids, and I had to make a living. And I really kind of got way off into the restaurant business. And um, but I was always had the good fortune of working at you know like the best places in town. Where there's um, when I moved back to Seattle, and I was 21 years old, and I. Uh, I got a job as a waiter at the Mirabeau restaurant on the top of the Seattle First National Bank building. Remember that place? I do. Yeah, really high That's... end. So I was like, yeah, you know, setting things on fire in front of tables and stuff. And <laughs> it was uh, it was really cool, cool experience. And um, and then I, I got into um, running the Nordstrom stores. It had these little sandwich shops in them back in the early seventies, and, and I did that. And um, and then um, I had the, the, the good fortune of, uh, of moving out to uh, Duval, Washington in 1977. And uh, we did that to, uh, uh, we bought this old Grange Hall and there was a little funky restaurant there called the Silver Spoon. So we kept the name because actually the Silver Spoon had been founded at the same time that I had started this restaurant in Ellensburg. And we were both kind of just hippies, you know, trying to make, you know, better food than you could get elsewhere. Right. And, uh, and so that's at the silver spoon I got, it was 1977. And, and then, um, you know, over a couple of years, just kind of building it up, we had it built up pretty well, but one, one day, um, we were really busy on the weekends, but one, it was a weekday for lunch. Um, this guy came in with, uh, two other people and they had lunch and it turned out it was, uh, uh, the guy was Jack Berg, and he was married to Ginny Riley of Riley Maloney, and the other two people were Riley Maloney and David, or David Maloney and, and Ginny Riley. And so um, they were um, recording a record at Bear Creek Studios, which mm-hmm. was Joe and Manny Hadlock's uh, gorgeous studio that they built. Strangely enough, they all went to uh, Central as well. Um, and, <laughs> okay. and my wife... I had gone to high school with Manny Hadlock. I forget her, her maiden name. But anyway, so we, you know, we all kind of knew each other. And so they said, well, go have a lunch at the Silver Spoon. You really like it. And so they did. And then, you know, they just in conversation said, hey, what's going on upstairs? I said, you have a second floor. And, and um, we used to have an art gallery up there. It was a co-op for the community because there's a lot of artists out there. And uh, it was just kind of at that time, the art gallery is kind of, you know, fizzling out as co-ops do. And so I said, well, it's, it's pretty much empty right now. And uh, so they took a look at it and they decided that they were going to have their album release party at the Silver Spoon because it was close to the studio and they just fell in love with the space. It's, you know, it's in a Grange Hall. It's folk music. I mean, it doesn't get much better right. than that. So we did our very first 
Um, that's where I produced my, my, actually my very first concert myself, and that was Riley Maloney at the album release party at the um, Silver Spoon on the second what? floor of the Grange Hall. So 200 people came. They loved it. Was it a raging success or it abject failure? It was so successful, even though okay. we made people sit on these rock-hard benches with no backs to them. Okay. And, you know, we didn't really have – We there was kind of a stage there um, – but we didn't have lighting, so we just hung a bar from chain down and put a clamp light on it. But we didn't really have it switched. Uh, you couldn't do, do There was no switch anywhere for that outlet. So without turning on all the lights, right? So, oh. um, or off, turning all the lights off. So the artists, when they got on stage, they pulled the string and the clamp light went on. And now you can see them. The show started thereafter. I love it. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So, you know, I got, you know, a UW guy. Um, yeah, I think he was actually a student buddy president. Dan Mortensen uh, was doing sound for us out there because he had, he had been doing sound for Riley Maloney. And that was the beginning of a long relationship with Dan Mortensen, one of the best sound guys in Seattle. And uh, uh, kind of goes with my tradition of always doing the best, you know, always trying to be the best at whatever I did. And so the sound was always really great. And, uh, and the crowds love it. And, you know, they really, really came back and they did kind of a regular gig there. And then pretty soon we had Uncle Bonsai playing there and Michael Tomlinson and all of the, you know, the bigger draws and kind of the singer songwriter folk scene of Seattle were coming out to right. Duval to do concerts. And they were all, you know, basically selling out. And so then word got out to other artists, you know, because some of those acts were touring and they go, oh, you got to, you got to play the Silver Spoon. It's really cool. And, uh, and so then we started doing, you know, like, uh, like Odetta and Dave Van Ronk uh, played there a few times. Um, you know, I was a huge fan of Dave Van Ronk's and, and uh, um, you know, other, you know, the Dillards and other, mostly in the folk uh, and uh, bluegrass kind of vein, even, uh, okay. but then we got into uh, um, this whole new thing that was happening with Will Ackerman and um, Window Hill Records. And so we were the first place that George Winston played in the, really? state, of, in the state of Washington. Yeah. At, oh, uh, okay. And we <laughs> literally, we got all of the hippies in town and we borrowed a piano from somebody and we hauled it up the back stairs by hand um, <laughs> so that George could play on this old upright. That old we up. did pay to have it tuned, but um, it was pretty cool. And we kind of went through all of the roster of Wyndham Hill. They, they, they've all played the place. And, and so that, that whole relationship is what led me into uh, um, starting the backstage in Ballard. I grew up in Ballard. And okay. so um, it was actually Jack Berg had, had been, and Ryan Maloney had been playing at the backstage for quite a few years by then because the Silver Spoon had gone away uh, um, for various reasons. And... Um, uh, so, um, I was contacted by the owner of the, of the building that the backstage was in. And he says, you know, we're really struggling. You know, we've had several owners of the, of this place downstairs and nobody's really making it work very well. And, uh, Jack Berg said, I should talk to you. So I went and met with the guy and, uh, at the time I was just flat broke. Um, <laughs> and, uh. So I was really interested in doing it and it being in Ballard was a, you know, another cool thing about it. And the space was pretty awesome. So I worked out a deal with him. I, I had, like I said, I didn't have any money, but I worked, we agreed on what my salary would be to run the place. And mm -hmm. I said, well, but I really want to buy it. And he wanted me to buy it. He really didn't want to run it, but initially mm -hmm. he hired me. I somehow I sold him on the fact that I could make it work. And, uh, um, so the first first six months, I worked for um, peanuts and the rest in in exchange for um, working up to ten thousand a pot of money of ten thousand dollars that he owed me. Um, that then we exchanged that for all of his inventory, and I then I leased everything from him. So I didn't really have to buy the business. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it was a good deal. It was a win, perfect win win situation. It was a good deal for me. It was a really good deal for him especially because we turned out to be so friggin' successful. You know, we went from zero to, you know, 360 in a pretty short time. 
Well, that's that's the venue, and I I told you this the other day when we were talking. That's the venue that I can describe, but I can never remember the name of. I don't that there's this memory. The synopsises aren't connecting. I can never remember the backstage. I don't know why. It's just well, it's because we sold alcohol. Okay, uh, <laughs> that that could be my excuse. I'll go with that because none of the other venues in Ballard sold alcohol. None yeah. of them. No. You know, that was a, one of my first lessons in running a club like that was. Um, we did uh, a lot of work with radio stations because it was a 500 capacity club. So now I'm working with artists who are, you know, like on their, you know, on their way up or a lot of artists mm-hmm. on their way down. So or, and most of the artists were, will just play a club like that their whole careers and, and make a darn good living. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a station manager uh, for KMPS and we were doing um, uh, the show we were doing was the first uh, Seattle or state of Washington appearance of Garth Brooks. And so this is like in wow. 1989 or something like that. And, uh, and the radio manager told me, I was telling him, cause I was, I'd only been doing it for about two years. I still struggling making a real, we were getting by, we were successful, mm-hmm. but still struggling making a living. And he says, well, quit trying to make money by selling music. You make music by selling beer. I make music by selling tires. Okay. Radio stations, okay. they make their money in advertising. So that was his uh, his advice is just figure, you know, you got to price your beer accordingly and you bring in the acts and, um, you know, you'll, you'll do better if you have that in your mind. But then and I that, also, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I also learned how to become kind of more of a promoter than a mm-hmm. venue owner. Uh, promoting artists is a, kind of a little different. There's a different business model there. So it's a combination of two business models. One is, you know, retail, restaurant, food service, um, food and beverage business, and then um, the concert business. So I had a lot of a lot of good advisors. I think, um, you know, I've always been good at uh, uh, knowing what I don't know. And uh, having people help me out. So, so, so answer this question for me then. So you, you got this advice that sell, sell beer, if you will, and the music will take care of itself in, I'm oversimplifying that. You found that to be true. Uh, yes, that was it's, a- it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. You have to, okay. your business model is to make money um, selling beer and, and whatever else you could sell t-shirts, you know, mm-hmm. as many revenue streams as you can going and make the venue successful. Um, and then I, a lot of the artists that were coming in, especially those on their way up, like Mary Chapman Carpenter and Sean Colvin and Lucinda Williams, you know, all women, but there were some guys too, um, who were, you know, this was their first shows. So I think, I think Mary Chicken Carpenter played the venue three, three times before she like won this, you know, won a Grammy award and, or okay. no country music award. It was some kind of country music award and became a big, a big thing. So, um, uh, and so that, that was kind of same with Sean Colvin. She probably played the club three or four times before she outgrew the place with the, you know, when she started getting traction on radio airplay. And so then I made the transition to really know how to have to learn the business of being a concert promoter and putting the two together was mm-hmm. kind of the, the magic uh, ticket for financial success to stay profitable. So when you think of the backstage, if I put you on the spot, sure. What was a, a memorable show for you? Is there, is there some, uh, does some evening rise above the rest as far as being memorable? Oh man, there are so many, but the first one that came to my mind, um, and probably because there's, uh, there was recently a, an NPR story about, um, these people. And it's, uh, um, a guy who's, you know, who, one of those who would always play the backstage. He was never going to, you know, I would be presenting him as a headliner at the Paramount theater two years from now. Mm-hmm. And his name was Guy Clark and, okay. uh, a songwriter out of Nashville. Um, and, uh, so he, he was one of those that came into the club every year, um, and always sold it out. And he was always great. He was maybe a little bit too often drunk by the end of the night, but, um, you know, just a a brilliant songwriter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, so 
one one year he was going on tour with Towns Van Zandt, who had also played the club the club by you know solo act, and another artist who was never going to be presented at the Paramount Theater as a headliner. Um, they were going out as a as a duo, and then um, once we published the show, I was contacted by Mickey Newberry, who's a more obscure but also a brilliant. Uh, singer-songwriter of kind of the same ilk and hung out with those guys in the earlier days. And he was now living in in um, Oregon somewhere, down towards Salem. And so he said, you know, I'd, I'd love to come up and open that show, you know, be, be on that show with those guys, you know, and told me this story. And uh, so we we put it all, we put it all together and uh, Mickey Newberry, uh, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, and at the end of the night, all three of them were on stage, and it was—I mean, Towns Van Zandt can—he can make you laugh and cry in the same song. Um, it's amazing, and just there was just real, real magic about that night, and I think it was mainly because the artists were having such a good time, and uh, that reminds me of kind of a philosophy that we live by at the backstage and that, um, you know, we, we didn't have any decor. That's probably another reason why you don't remember the backstage. There was no decor. All of the, all of the walls in the stage, everything was just painted black. There was a real kind of mediocre pedestrian bar. The back bar was nothing, nothing special about the place except the artists on the stage. And so we made that always our, our priority is that the most important thing to our success is that artists on the stage and the most the best way you're going to have that artist do the best show possible is that they feel really good about being here. So when they, when artists would arrive, we took really good care of them. Our green room was always clean and, and orderly and we gave them good food and the shows were well marketed and promoted and, and, uh, um, they, and there are no sound system, you know, thanks to Dan Mortensen. Um, was just by far the best sound system for in, in town for any room, any size. It was just mm-hmm. the best. And, um, and so, you know, that's what makes artists the most happy is to, number one, be respected, and you want to be treated professionally when they walk in the door and have things ready and, and you know, their dressing rooms set up and the way they want it, and, and then have a professional sound guy and the top-notch equipment so that just everything goes well in there and they're just that gets them started with a great um, attitude you know they just, so they, they can they feel, do what they're good at exactly they make about that, that really easy i mean there's there's so many amazing shows that it's just hard i mean i could i think once i came up with a top 20 <laughs> but <laughs> i'd have to i'd have to work on reassembling that but yeah just so on the so on the flip side of that, let me put you on the spot in a negative way. Then was there does any show come to mind that was like, oh, that didn't go well? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's always a fair share of those too, and and it's it it's the same story though. If if the artist is not happy, whether mm-hmm. it's you're doing or not, and some people are really not happy. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. found that in life, but some people are just basically never, ever going to be happy. And, um, and that shows <laughs> when, they, when they come in the building and there is this uh, woman, uh, her name was Jane Oliver. I had really never heard of her, which, you know, is, you may find this surprising, but that would happen to me a lot. I'd get a call from an agent or um, somebody to say, Hey, uh, um, Jane Oliver is on tour and, you know, she does this and this and this, and they'd have to educate me. This was pre-internet, so I'd, I really trusted the agents. And we had, you know, I had to have really good relationships with the agents. So, you know, they had to know I'm a good guy. We do a good work and we, you know, they'll send us the best artists. Mm-hmm. So this was um, an agent that I not worked with much before, but I'm kind of generally a trusting person. Um, but anyway, this woman, Jane Oliver, I haven't, I have no idea how she was successful in show business ever because she was just horrible, horrible person to me and to 
everyone. The, the sound guy um, left. The, he, he decided, oh, I got to capture this during sound check because she was just dropping the f bombs left and right, and it's just like so mean and and hurtful to the things she was saying to everybody around her. That he he ran a tape and we we played it back <laughs> for years. And oh man, it was we, that was our only uh, enjoyment. And uh, <laughs> we, we we had to. She was one of those that we had to have a local band, and we had to pick her up at the airport in a limo, and you know one of those things. And uh, I remember um, the last the last thing because the whole the whole thing was just horrible. She kept threatening to not perform at all. Um, it, it wasn't all that well attended, but there were, in fact, people there. Only people, mostly people who love show tunes and new Broadway and that kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. But on, as she's leaving, uh, you know, she's out of our hair. I, I thought the whole thing was over, and I get a call from the guy who's driving her and said, um, uh, you probably don't care anymore, but I want you to know that I, I just pulled over and I told Jane Oliver to get out of the car, and I drove away. So our driver could not tolerate her verbal abuse. And so he just pulled over, got her suitcases out of the car and said, call a cab. I'm out of here. That's how bad a person she is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So, you know, again, oh. I don't know how many episodes you want to cut, but. I have I have other bad ones, but you know. that's a that's just that's just an awesome story. We could just let's just stop with that. That's that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so we, God, I have no idea who this person is either. Yeah, uh, I guess up. I'll go. She, I'm going to. She, and, you can you find know. Wikipedia on her. I'm sure. Uh, okay. And, and by the way, is that tape still circulating? Can I find a copy I of the tape? Know. You, guys made? you know, I don't think so. I'm a I was I'm horrible at that. The people that worked with me. So they saved more stuff than I ever did. I'm, I just, I was never good at memorabilia. I mean, I have, okay. I have Ringo Starr's autograph on a backstage pass I had, but that's about it. All right. Nina Simone's autograph. I have that too. People who are okay. really important to me. Important to you. Okay. Let's, I, I'd like to ask you about, you know, cause my, my connection to the backstage was probably, <sighs> 84 to 89, that mm -hmm. five-year window-ish. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think who I saw play there. I, I have a couple of, like I said, well, there's the 80s were a blur yeah. for all of us. Yeah, I well, I didn't, and, start, uh, I didn't start there until 87. So there was a period, yeah. um, there was a lot of ups and downs. Uh, yeah. And very sporadic. Uh, the programming was... Uh, not very consistent and di the various different operators and owners going through right. it. So. so the Seattle musicians that start, were starting in Seattle on mm -hmm. the way, you know, who, who did you find, who were you, were you booking anybody from the Seattle area that you found personally on an interest, like intro, like you're like, Oh, these, th this band's kind of cool. Like what pops to mind there? Well, I ended up managing it was a band called the pickets and, uh, um, the Pickets were um, kind of uh, a grunge version of uh, Americana, um, mm -hmm. but more more just kind of traditional, a little bit of you know original rock and roll. Um, mm -hmm. But they were they just struck me as being the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I worked with them uh, for five or six years actually until I uh, left the backstage and got too busy with other projects, and they they kind of were not as active. Uh, you have to, you know, they were, they were, you know, probably more your age or in between your age and my age. They were. Yeah. I, well, uh, Chris, you're talking about Christy McWilson. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's how I got yeah. close with Scott McCoy was by, of course, the three young fresh fellows played the, the place a lot. And I loved all those guys. Um, right. You know, mud honey played the club, but you had to be, cause we were 500 capacity, you know, it's not like the crocodile, you know, a hundred people in there made it feel like there was a, a you know, a crowd, whereas a hundred people in the backstage was like, hello, you know, like who's here. Um, kind of like the ranch was, yeah, you know, yeah, the big place. So you have to have bigger names to make it work. You just can't have mm -hmm. um, smaller acts in there. And, uh, but you know, we, we took advantage of the opening situation to work with local acts. Um, mm -hmm. 
And and then, you know, of course, local musicians are really creative about putting together, you know, three band lineups that, you know, together pack a punch. And um, mm-hmm. we did that as much as we could. But my in booking, my priority was always to fill the calendar with national acts. And then because those were always like three to four months out. Um, and then and then I'd see where the blanks were. And if I had a weekend, I'd bring in local music to fill the gaps. When you were running the backstage, how many nights a week were you presenting music? Uh, we were pretty much steady to four to five nights a week. Yeah, wow. we do about 200 to 220 shows a year. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, that was pretty pretty okay. steady. And then you moved on from the, the backstage. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I um, In 95... 19, actually it's 94, I got the, I had the meeting with the people who were um, uh, running uh, Bumbershoot, uh, One Real Company, they were called One Real Productions. And, uh, um, and so they were running the Bumbershoot Festival for the city of Seattle. They were actually paid by city money to produce the event. And then, of course, they tried to earn enough money by at the event to to warrant there when they were being paid but uh, so yeah i went to work norm langell was the founder and president of one reel and uh and so they they called me in because i was i was having you know success at what i was doing and um, they were not having success at what they were doing i think 90 1994 bummer shoot had been their their biggest uh, bummer bummer shoot ever and uh, okay. and so they fired the person that was doing their talent buying and were looking for a new talent buyer so um, they met with me among some other local talent uh, buyer kind of people promoters and mm-hmm. uh, and so they hired me and uh, I was still on the backstage and did both jobs the year the, the year of 1995 so I programmed uh, I think like 18 concerts at the pier, Summer Nights at the Pier, 16 or 18 that first year. I know by the mm-hmm. time I left, we were up to doing 30 concerts a year. So we kept growing the whole thing. And uh, um, and then, you know, who knows how many acts I booked at um, Bumbershoot. Um, probably, I, I just remember being very tired <laughs> on, <laughs> on September 5th or whatever it was. Right. Uh, from that whole experience. And so along the way, um, also I had uh, a couple little kids who were, you know, five and three, but I think they're at the age where they're both really going into school. And um, I really, I really enjoyed my work at One Real. I just, that was just like so cool. It was just like a big step up for me. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. And plus it was kind of a a nine to five job most of the year. And Mm -hmm. the only time it wasn't was the summer months. And then my office was in a trailer on pier 62, you know, like how, how does it get much better than that to have your office right on the waterfront? Yeah. Um, So I, I, I sold the backstage Um, kind of underlying that besides the fact that I, I, the lifestyle at one reel was going to be a lot more appealing. Um, but it was also that I was having problems with the landlord, the, per- the man who owned the building. Um, I guess I think he had two other partners, but the guy who ran the building um, uh, was not happy with the backstage being in his basement anymore because he had added two floors onto that building. So it was, it was already the biggest building in Ballard. Now it was like mm-hmm. a really big building in Ballard. And he was leasing it out to you know doctors and lawyers and cheeks and stuff like that and uh and no matter what he did to try to fix it every monday morning he'd get a ton of calls from all his tenants going it smells like a, a tavern in here you know so well that's because, <laughs> that's because you're in a 1928 building that doesn't really have you know uh they ventilate the old way by moving air throughout the building and uh, and that was back when you could smoke at bars too, so you can only imagine oh, just, like spilt beer and cigarette smoke, just like you just couldn't get rid of it. 
So he was just, he kept making my life so, so difficult. And I couldn't do any sound checks before uh, 5 p.m., which for some of the bigger national acts was really a problem. And I mean, we even got into, sh- I just said, you know, I'm trying to make a living here. And, you know, he's the one benefiting from all my success because I was paying him 10% of my business to be, to be right. down there. Okay. My business had grown quite a bit, so he was doing all right by me. Um, but now he has, you know, all this other income. And uh, um, so I was kind of getting weary of that battle. And I, it was just kind of the timing. I had uh, two years left on my one five-year lease, and I had another five-year option after that. So it was a good time to sell because it was a good time to sell. It was a good time to sell. Yeah. All right. And, uh, and then I had this other you know, really great job waiting for me. So I sold the backstage and, and became a full-time one reeler, uh, or we call them unreal sometimes, but we were all good, good people doing good work. And, uh, okay. and so that was in 95 and I stayed with one reel for five years until then I got recruited away from them by Paul Allen's, you know, big bags of money. He would, put out in front of people and say, I want you to come to work for me. And that was to open up EMP and to do the programming for EMP. I really wanted to do both because I really didn't want to leave one real. I had so much fun there and I just love those people still have great relationships with them. I mean, I got to be part of the opening team of Teatro Zanzani and, you know, five nights a week at Teatro Zanzani, I got to work with Ann Wilson who, you know, is, that's a good story. It's the whole Wilson yeah. sisters, if you want me to. That, that goes, this is, yeah. ties it all together. Because it kind of goes okay. through my whole career and ended at, at Benaroya Hall not too long ago. So um, when I owned the, the, back, the Silver Spoon out in Duval, uh, Hart, of course, was an East Side band. They were, came out of the um, Bellevue area, mm-hmm. Lake Hills, I think it was. And, um, and so um, Nancy Wilson used to come into the restaurant all the time uh, you know really regularly and just sit and have tea and maybe have lunch and um and then the rest of the band would come out and never was with the rest of the band typically it was always the other guys but uh, you know i knew that Hart was at the at the silver spoon because we had a pretty small parking lot and there'd be uh five uh saab uh 900 turbos convertibles all the same color all the same year parked in the parking lot and that meant that Hart was in the restaurant uh so having the lunch. band members all had all drove the yeah, same car? yeah as it turns out they told me that columbia records bought each one of them their own sob turbo convertible <laughs> okay when they okay. when they signed them you know there's you know like a, there's lots of stories about record industry and how that works but yeah um but anyway so i you know my relationship with them goes way way back to those days and you know, became friends with many of them and hung out with them privately and, you know, been to some mm-hmm. of their homes. And, and uh, uh, yeah, so then I got to, you know, work with Ann Wilson. At, she was the original Chanteuse singer at uh, Teatro Zanzoni back in 1998. And uh, that was really a, a great experience to see that thing happen. You know, it was just so otherworldly, just so fantastic. Um, huh. Anyway. So we kind of glossed over the, the whole EMP thing. Mm, yes. So what was that like? Cause I, yeah. What was it like on the inside of it? How's Horrible. that? <laughs> okay. That's why it's always been messed up. You know, it goes back to happy people, unhappy people, okay. I think, but um, in my mind, but there's uh, you know, doing, doing that booking was like a, I just couldn't say no to it. You know, they wanted me to put together kind of a retrospective of the Seattle um, music scene. And so, you know, I, at one stage, one day, I had, you know, Merrily Rush and the Turnabouts and Paul Revere and the Raiders and Jimmy Hanna and the Dynamics and, you know, all of those old rock bands. The Sonics were not playing at that time. I always, always tried to get Jerry to go back to work and do a gig, but um, that took many more years after I gave up. He finally did, but uh, 
you know, um, the whalers, the fabulous whalers out of Tacoma, you know, I, it was just an incredible retrospective of, you know, the sixties Seattle music scene right. one day on the mural stage. And, uh, and then of course, you know, we had, you know, all of these monster acts in the Coliseum that were just a, you know, kind of a pain in the ass, but it sold tickets and Paul wanted it to right. be a huge blowout. So, um, and we were paying people ridiculous money, but my favorite part of booking that thing was uh, one of the aspects of the museum was a thing called Funk Blast, and Funk Blast mm-hmm. was a, a kind of in a separate, you know, weird part of the building that was it was kind of like a Disneyland ride where you sat in theater seats and they moved and wind blew in your face and you felt like you were actually on a roller coaster kind of thing, and it was a journey through. Um, the funk music scene. And so uh, in preparation for that, they flew me down to Los Angeles and then, you know, a taxi ride out to um, Sony Studios where they were on the lot. Um, you know, big, I'd never seen anything like this before in my life, but they were, they were filming this. You know, they were, they were making this video that then ended up being a ride at EMP and I remember hearing that they they were already spent twenty million dollars on this thing, and that you know they were, they were probably going to be spending more. So my job was to create a live show out of that. So in going down to um, Hollywood and, and being on set, I got to talk to you know all the all the guys who were part of putting that all together. And I'm I'm sorry. The guy's name escapes me right now, but he was James Brown's number one guy um, in the day, wow. uh, in the early days. He was, if you watch any of the documentaries or life stories of James Brown, he's his character is always there because he was really important to James' success okay. as kind of his manager and and guide. He guided him through the craziness of of James Brown. So, which uh, <laughs> so that. That reminds me why this is why working with James Brown is, is so important because I had I had him at Summer Nights the Pier too, um, so I knew what working with him was like and it's a little bit of chaos. Uh, so um, anyway, working with some people who were really close to the, all of those musicians, we put together this show that was in the um, Key Arena um, on. Unfortunately, it was on the same day that I built this great retrospective of Seattle's rock and roll um, on the grounds. So, um, so uh, we had the opening act was the original JBs, which had their own funk, you know, hits, mm-hmm. and um, and then the middle act was Maceo Parker who had a long career with James Brown. And then, of course, James Brown was the headliner of the show. And um, we tried to replicate as much as possible of what it was, you know, what the video was like um, inside. So we had, you know, lots of mylar strips falling from the ceiling at various times. And it was pretty cool. It was a pretty awesome, awesome show. And unknown to everybody, including myself, was that... um, Prince sat in with James Brown on his set. He played keyboards in the background where really nobody could see him. And he was wearing, wow. he was wearing an oversized hat. Not Prince. Never wear. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought? Um, no. and, uh, wow. So anyway, that was a really cool show. But my favorite story of that whole thing was that um, now I, you know, you, my job was also to advance the show's you know, the artist management, tour manager, tour managers or artist management. And so, you know, there was a, a lot of moving parts. I was, you know, must have booked over 150 acts just for that one weekend, three days of shows. Jeez. And uh, so when it came down to James Brown um, showing up, I, I, I know that I had said this many times because I'd worked with him before, I knew that he, he has he's kind of a cash guy. A lot of those old school artists have to be paid in cash all the time. So I was really mm-hmm. made sure I was clear to say they, they do not handle cash on on any of these shows. You know, they pay in advance. Um, you know, of course your deposit, and if you need any other money, you know, when you have you know a cashier's check waiting for you, or even 
wire to your bank and show you evidence of it, whatever. It's like this, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, this is how we have to work. <clears throat> it's, mm-hmm. it's just the way it has to work. So of course, James Brown shows up <laughs> with his tour manager, um, who I don't really know his real name. He was just, everybody called him the judge. So I called him the judge. And so um, the judge says, well, you know, of course we, I, I need to be paid in cash before he goes on stage. And I go, no, no, we've gone over this so many times in the last uh, uh, couple months that it was part of the offer. It's in writing here. I, I held my offer in front of him. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. And he said, well, James Brown's not going to go on. <laughs> so um, I let the people who were, my superiors in the organization know that James Brown is not going to go on unless he gets paid in cash. And they said, well, that's crazy. That's not going to happen. And I said, okay, well, we'll just do the show with the JBs and uh, Maceo Parker, you know, it'll be great. Um, And then I get a call about a half an hour after they say, that's just not going to happen. And they say, uh, well, we just had a meeting with the mayor and the president of Seacrest Bank and uh, the president of Seattle Center, and uh, we have your hundred thousand dollars ready for you. So, um, so hundred thousand dollars in cash. I've never in my life ever had that much money. Did you have a briefcase with like I a did. handcuff on you? I did. Oh, did you really? <laughs> I did. I didn't have a handcuff though, but I had. Okay. Okay. I had my briefcase. <laughs> And so I, I was, I called the, you know, cell phones were not, not everybody had cell phones back then. So I was right. trying to get a message from the judge. Okay. I got the money after all I'm here. Come on down. And, uh, um, he never got back to me. So I was stuck with this hundred thousand dollars in cash in a briefcase that I couldn't just leave somewhere. And, um, you know, when you guys walk, watch this while I you know, go to the bathroom, you know, I had to carry it with me everywhere. And I wasn't about to go out on the Seattle Center grounds carrying $100,000 in cash. I really wanted to go see that show over at the mural stage. So I was stuck in the key arena all day uh, carrying $100,000 in cash waiting for the judge to show up. So we did, I did, you know, do the deed, do the deed with the judge and he had to count it twice, which you know, so meanwhile, watching this man count money for about a half an hour, um, with very little being said, just the sounds of hundred dollar bills hitting the table over and over again. So I finally got rid of that hundred thousand dollars and could breathe again. And uh, you know, everybody got ridiculous amounts, like just amounts of money. Uh, James Brown had just played. Well, he had played a gig at the pier two years before for thirty thousand dollars. So. Okay, thank you. I was just going to ask. I mean, okay, James Brown gets a hundred grand. No, two hundred grand. Is that normal? He had the deposit in advance. He was going to pay two hundred grand for one show. Okay. Oh, we paid everybody stupid money. I, I won't go into it because. Maybe no, it's I okay, can but, be sued but, by somebody. I think, but no, we don't want that. We don't want yeah, that. Wow. It was obscene okay. amounts of money. That's that's crazy. So overall, the EMP thing was, you know, you were part of the launch. Yeah. And, and then, though, I'm reading your bio, and you got McCaw Hall, Ben Royal Hall. Yeah, that's because EMP dumped me as soon as, as, soon as I don't know if it was because I couldn't, you know, do the hundred, the cash deal or what. But, uh, you know, they had all these promises that I was going to be their programming director of this, you know, brand new museum. I would, you know, I was just thought, man, this is the greatest, you know, highest profile job for a talent buyer you could ever imagine. And, uh, you know, their organization was, people were being fired just like every day You go, really? They're not here anymore? I thought they were in charge. Um, And uh, it was just chaos inside, internally. Well, I'd like to... Well, before we continue on, I'm going to pause here and say that this is probably going to end up being a two-part conversation because we're going to talk about SeaTac, and I think we're going to have your wife on that one. Yes. So we're going to we're going to leave that one off. So we might just truncate it like that. But 
it says here, and what I'd like to know is, so you, you were promoting shows at the Paramount in the more. Yes. Who were you, who were you bringing to the Paramount theater? Most of the artists I presented were artists who started at their gigs at the um, backstage. So it was Mary Shaven Carpenter. It was uh, Sean Colvin. It was Cindy Williams. Um, uh, you know, Richard Thompson, um, you know, on and on Chris Isaac. Um, I always say Chris Isaac was the best show at the backstage that I never saw. <laughs> why? Just okay. Why? Why didn't you see that show? Well, because I was also presenting. Here's another person who I presented at larger venues is Ani DeFranco, and she was just okay. kind of starting out. And so I had her booked at the backstage, and then I get a call from uh, an agent that I work with a lot, and and, uh, and he represents Chris Isaac, and Chris had this new album coming out. And he wanted to open, um, he wanted to have like this promo gig in Seattle. Uh, and as it turns out, the reason why he did that is because he was, had been working on um, that movie, uh, you know, the Twin Peaks movie uh, mm -hmm. up here at the time uh, or around that time or be before that time, actually. But, uh, so he made a lot of friends and stuff and he wanted to come up and do this promo show in Seattle. It was just all for the records the record release and you know, they usually play an undersized venue and give away the tickets and it's a big deal and it's, everybody's talking about mm -hmm. it. So, um, so anyway, I had to go back to the Andy DeFranco's agent and say, I hate to do this, but I've got a chance to do this gig and I, I, I can find another venue for Andy DeFranco easily because she's only going to sell like 150 tickets, you know, at the most. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so the agent totally understood. And so I presented Andy DeFranco that night at the Weathered Wall, which is a historic venue of that era. Um, in the early nineties, great venue right across from the um, Weston hotel, uh, downtown mm -hmm. Seattle. And, uh, so I was down at the weathered wall, uh, working the Ani DeFranco concert, um, while, and Chris Isaac was, Chris at, Isaac the, was the backstage. at the backstage. So I get all okay. done, you know, the show's great with Ani and I pay her and she's happy and takes off and I get back to the club and it's of course, uh, all empty except for my staff who are all sitting around the bar and just going, that was the best show I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, they told me stories for the next two hours over beers at the, at the, at the bar oh after about how great a show it was. Evidently, uh, all of the friends he had made in Seattle while making that movie were all uh, strippers at local strip bars. And so they, they all were on the guest list and, uh, ended up uh, doing what they do uh, right? and as part of the show. And um, I evidently the crowd loved it. Oh my and Chris Isaac okay. was playing his guitar uh, wireless and he was playing it walking on the bar, which is a really long bar. It goes up one whole wall at the backstage. Um, and while doing that, he tripped and fell and broke his nose. So, but he, the show went on and uh <laughs> the best show at the backstage that you never saw yeah. oh my gosh that's awesome yeah there was so many I, like i say i could go on for days oh, that's just it i mean we have to like we, we we could i know we can continue this for a long long time put so questions i love to ask music people so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of run some questions okay. by you. and now you're gonna be a little biased because you owned venues but where was your, where's your all-time favorite venue in Washington state? It's always going to be Washington state. So it can just be Seattle. That's fine. But Washington state to see music. The backstage. And if, if we could indulge that, who would you want to see at the backstage? Anybody. I mean, I, I've, I've, Oh no, you get to pick, you get to oh. pick who, who would you, who would you want to see? Like if we could recreate, like we could roll time back to when you owned it. And, but, but his, but we're going to, you know, this is, this is the, uh, it's total make-believe. So you can pick any performer you want. Yeah. From any era. Who would you want to see? Well, you know, yeah. because it was the first album I ever bought and kind of my original, you know, music love would be Ray Charles. Okay. Did you, have you ever seen Ray Charles perform? Oh yes. I went and saw him at Parker's ballroom about, about the same time I owned the backstage, but he could do a thousand tickets and I could only do 500 out, right. of the, out of Parker's, so I couldn't compete. 
Um, but I was in there. Okay. I was in the running. There was others that I tried to get. I tried to get Nina Simone a number of times, but um, she just wasn't working in the United States. Mm-hmm. She was kind of an expat in Paris at the time. Because I was a big fan of hers. Um, you know, there's others that I would like to have seen there. Um, I can't think of their names right now. It'll come to me. So if I put you on the spot, yeah. Washington State musicians that you've seen perform. Yes. Who's the most, I'll use the word iconic, Washington State performer that you've ever seen perform live? Mm. Well, again, that list could be really long. I mean, I, I had the good fortune of seeing Jimi Hendrix at the arena in 1968. How was that show? It was really amazing. And then I saw him again in 1969 at um, the Key Arena. Yeah, it was at Key Arena. Okay. And, then, and then he played uh, Six Stadium after that. So I didn't, for some reason, I was okay. out, unavailable to go to that show. Um, I think it was yeah, raining that day is the story. Yes. Well, you know, then my first year at Bumbershoot, we, we did a tribute to Jimi Hendrix and we had all the original band and a lot of the other people that he'd uh, played with over the years and then aired all of the best guitar players of Bumbershoot, including like, um, you know, you know, guy, just people that we had booked that no one has ever heard of, but they were still really great guitar players. We had them part of the show and, and, uh, mm-hmm. So the last time I saw Jimi Hendrix play was in the Coliseum or Key Arena, whichever you remember. Now what's it called? Yeah. Something else. Climate Pledge. Yeah. Um, Something. So anyway, at the end of that Hendrix show, um, all the house lights went out, and all you heard was his guitar reverberating in the in the speaker, and uh, he left the stage. But then there was these bright flashes of light coming in from all the doorways, and there was a huge lightning storm going on. I get goosebumps just oh. thinking about it. And, uh, wow. and so there was this huge lightning storm that we all f- assumed that Jimi Hendrix conjured up uh, for for his grand finale. And as we were leaving, we were all getting soaked with this downpour and, and lightning. It was just really, really amazing. So then, you know, go 20 years forward and we're doing this tribute to Jimi Hendrix at um, Memorial Stadium, um, Seattle Center Grounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the show, um, I feel a few raindrops, and then pretty soon there's these huge flashes of lightning, and there's just this huge downpour. On the Monday night, huh. the closing night of Bumbershoot, uh, uh, 1995, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah. I, I was not, I did not see Hendrix. And my friends that have seen Hendrix all tell variations of your story. Yeah. I mean, in other words, it was something magical every every time they they saw him. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we we have a lot to be proud of in Washington State. Um, holy cow! I mean, so many great artists, and you know, doing the airport now. You know, we always like to tell people how you know the diversity of the music is demonstrated on the overhead music that you hear in the airport now, because they play everything from Kenny G to Macklemore, you know? Um, right. So, you know, it's just so many great artists. And, you know, I've had the so pleasure of working with a lot of them. So to wrap this episode up, let's go there. Cause what I, I'd like you to explain just real high level for us is this, your involvement at SeaTac airport um, and that program. Sure. So I was, um, this was in uh, 2012. I had been hired to be the programming manager for Benaroya Hall. My job was to bring in non-symphonic music that could sell tickets uh, because the number mm-hmm. of dates done by the symphony would, had been diminishing year by year as the crowds were diminishing. And so they had a lot of open nights. And so the trend then was for venues rather than rely on um, independent promoters uh, they started buying their own talent, like the Paramount does that. And um, so mm-hmm. Ben Rye Hall jumped on that bandwagon and hired me to program uh, the big room, you know, the taper hall where the 2,500 seats as also the 500 capacity um, uh, little hall at the head. So uh, I was doing that. And um, uh, part of that, we wanted to 
in, in marketing, I had this idea for marketing that we should bring in local musicians who are, you know, top of their game. Some of them could be symphony players or, or just, you know, singer songwriters. There's just so many good musicians in Seattle and have them perform um, busker style, you know, like Pike Place Market style, but out on the Third Avenue lobby um, where they had a, a Starbucks and a little cafe and it was just going to be a lunch hour thing. So, um, but we needed funding for it because we needed to pay uh, the musicians. We needed to pay a sound guy to run sound for it. But very simple, you know, small mm-hmm. setup. So that was the idea. Um, and looking for money, knowing that um, uh, the building was owned by the city of Seattle, I contacted James Kevlis, who at the time was the executive or the director of the Office of Film and Music for the city. And so I met with James down at Benaroy Hall, and uh, and he said, that's a really great idea. I'm going to try to find you some money. And in fact, he did find us some money to do okay. that programming in Benaroy Hall. But um, the Benaroy Hall people, they have lawyers and stuff, and uh, they made it way, way too complicated. And, and anyway, it was just dragging out and dragging out. And so James Kelvis came back to me and said, he said, you know, you're, uh, you're, I've been thinking about what you want to do at Benway Hall, and, I, and I've also been really involved in helping um, the Port of Seattle at SeaTac Airport um, bring uh, what they're calling Experience the City of Music uh, theme to the airport. So at the time, they had um, they had already changed all the mm-hmm. overhead music to be an all-local artist um, uh, on the overhead music, and they had, um, you know, uh, the, some famous artists like Macklemore and Anna Nancy Wilson and stuff uh, doing the, all the overhead announcements, all the TSA announcements. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for a way to do live music, but doing live music in an airport is really complicated. There's, there was a program um, in existence uh, at both Nashville and uh, Austin's airports. And both of, both of those were kind of based on the music being in one of the bars in the, in the airport. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they wanted something a little bit different than that. And James knew of my idea for the Ben Royal Hall thing. So he got us, got me a meeting with the CTAC people. And mm-hmm. because I was working for Ben Royal Hall, the whole presentation was, this would be a Ben Royal Hall marketing thing. So it would be, exposing what's going on at Ben Royal Hall to all the travelers coming in at SeaTac Airport. So it'd be a real, a real benefit, it'd be a win-win-win for everybody. And so, um, mm-hmm. but uh, again, the um, attorneys that work for the nonprofits, both Ben Royal Hall uh, is a separate nonprofit from the symphony, but they have, they shared an attorney who helped them and a really good guy, but he just really made things way, way too complicated. Um, and so again, this Seattle Port of Seattle people said, "Never mind. This is you know we're just going to pass on this. This is just not what we had in mind. This is getting way too complicated." So I said, "Hey, I'll do it for you. You know, if you really want music and this, if you like my idea, it's my idea. Um, you know, I've got permission from my employers at Benaroy Hall to just do my do this myself." And uh, so um, they didn't really know my background. They didn't know, you know, really who I was in the local community. So they did their homework. You know, they weren't originally, or um, they didn't start off being terribly enthused about the idea. But and, and then, you know, thankfully James Kevlin spoke very highly of me, and I did have a good track record. And so um, they gave me a, a chance at you know just trying it out. They said, well, let's just try it out for twelve weeks. Um, you know, we'll pay the musician, we'll pay you or somebody to be here to, you know, help make it happen because um, they they were sold on the whole concept of what, you know, I had presented on behalf of Benaroya Hall, which was, you know, we're doing this at really no cost because we'll gain the marketing from it. So mm-hmm. I really, originally, I didn't have any money in it for me as the, you know, owner of this new enterprise. So that whole first year... I mean, the 12-week trial basis after six weeks was moved to a 12-month permanent program. Um, They couldn't make it longer because it would require going out to a request for proposal because they're a government agency. So that program for the first year with maybe a couple dozen musicians and 
Um, it was a total of 10 gigs per week, uh, Monday through Friday. Um, and it was just so hugely successful for everybody, the musicians more than anybody else, but also the travelers loved it. It became the number one favorable comment that they get on their surveys that they're always taking in the airport. You mean TSA doesn't get number one? No, no, I, I know. It surprised me too. But we knocked, we probably Shocked. knocked them out of the number one yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> spot. Um, so that's good. Couldn't resist. No, no, I know. Uh, matter of fact, that was one of the biggest challenges was getting musicians with their gear passed through TSA. I mean, they finally warmed up to the idea and started accommodating us. But at first, they were just thought we were criminals for sure. Um, right. So, you know, it just well, got started and it just got its own momentum. And not only did the Port of Seattle um, put it out for RFP for a three-year contract that we, of course, won and won again and now won again. Uh, so we're into our... Uh, 10th year business with gigs for you and it's uh, continues to be successful and it's quite a story that deserves its own episode and that's where we're going to stop because they're going to have to tune in and hear that story shortly okay so what though i i feel like i always i always have to end it this way what i overlook <laughs> i mean you've had a long career i mean i know we've I, there's i know we overlooked a lot well, not, not, you know, is there something that I overlooked you want to bring? You know, there's just there's lots of great stories is all. And, you know, that, that can happen anytime and I'm not going to forget them for sure. But okay. <laughs> what I think the thing that was overlooked is really this, this really, truly significant impact that um, this airport program has had on local musicians. And it, and, okay. it, and it has already and it will for hopefully years and years to come and will go a long, long ways to cementing um, Seattle as a good place for artists to come and, and develop their career. Awesome. Well, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time today to make this happen. I, The best thing about the show for me is I always enjoy the conversations. I get to learn stuff. I get to talk to people that have done amazingly interesting things and you have excelled at all of that. So I appreciate your time. <laughs> well, great. It's been great, uh, great talking to you too. So we'll look forward to the next one. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.